Before we begin the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning, and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. So I'm Lisa Barrow. I'm uh, a new faculty member in the Faculty of Pharmacy and at the Charles Perkins Center. I'm the Chair of Medicines Use and um, Health Outcomes. I'm here to welcome you tonight and to uh, introduce uh, our speaker for the night, Andrew McLaughlin. We're delighted that this is the Faculty of Pharmacy's uh, first public lecture through the Sydney Ideas uh, series, and I think we have a great uh, topic to appeal to the diverse audience we have here uh, tonight, because I'm sure you're all thinking in your heads about some myths about medicines um, that you have for yourself. And as I said, I'm new to the University of Sydney. I've only been here about 10 weeks, and Andrew was one of the first people I, I met. Um, so unfortunately, I don't have any embarrassing or funny stories yet to tell about Andrew, so he's probably glad about that. Uh, but, I, <laughs> but I can tell you that you're in for quite a treat tonight with his uh, talk. So Andrew is professor of pharmacy at the University of Sydney and the Center for Education and Research on Aging at Concord Hospital. He is director of the NHMRC Center for Research Excellence in Medicines and Aging. He's a pharmacist, academic, and researcher all rolled into one, and he's experienced in clinical and experimental pharmacology and research on the quality of use of medicines, which is certainly related to the topic uh, we have tonight. So his research centers around optimizing patient care with a focus on special patient populations, such as older people, the very young, and the critically ill. He's a graduate of the University of Sydney, although he did pry himself away for a couple of years of uh, postdoc in the UK. But he returned in uh, 1994 and was appointed as a professor of pharmacy here in 2006. Uh, Dr. McLaughlin, or Professor McLaughlin, sorry, has a strong uh, research record that's shown through uh, grants and peer-reviewed publications, but the great thing is he can also translate this into language that everybody can understand. So this is why we're happy to have him as a speaker tonight. Andrew's on a number of international and national committees, and he was the Pharmacist of the Year in 2006 uh, in Australia. So through his work on optimizing patient care, uh, Andrew's heard a lot about myths about medicine. I know I have a couple that I think he doesn't have on his list that I might be asking about later, and I'm sure you will too. Uh, so the format for tonight is Andrew's going to talk for about uh, 45 or 50 minutes, and then we'll open up the floor for questions. Uh, since we have a pretty full house, and if you're standing, please feel free to come in. There's still some open chairs uh, at the front here, so come on in. Uh, and during the question period, we're going to ask people to line up at that microphone over there. It's very important we have the questions at the microphone because we're recording all this uh, for a podcast. So join me in welcoming Andrew. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. And um, I'd like to thank all of you for coming along. I know you have a choice. And I'd particularly like to thank the students who I can recognize in the audience because sometimes they don't have a choice to come along. And obviously, they've chosen tonight. So thank you. I'd like to acknowledge the um, uh, traditional owners of the land that we meet on, of course, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and also the traditional owners of this topic, which are essentially 
you, people who have the experience in using medicines and the great privilege I've had as a pharmacist to talk to people who use medicines and being a person who takes medicines himself. Uh, the motivation, I suppose, for this topic has been about some of those interesting facts that people share with me, which when I dig a bit deeper and I look into the substance of them, uh, there's usually more to them. So hopefully uh, I'll have a mix of uh, things that might interest you, and at least in the first two hours. I think the second two hours are a bit dry. <laughs> But I, I think it should be fine, and we'll go from there. Um, I'd like to let you know about uh, my uh, perspective on uh, declarations. It's very important, I think, when you give a presentation that might mention some medicines, you should know about uh, my conflicts of interest. So I get grant funding from different places, including uh, some support for some of my students and also some of the trials I've been on from pharmaceutical companies that are named there. Uh, my salary comes from the university and the hospital. Uh, I've been a consultant for a range of organisations and I get involved in a number of uh, committees uh, and like many academics I don't have any stocks and shares because I'm not smart enough to sort that out. <laughs> but my perspective uh, is uh, of a pharmacist who has the privilege to not only train pharmacists of the future and I get involved in teaching doctors and nurses as well but also I'm based out at a, uh, one of the university's teaching hospitals, that's at Concord Hospital, about half an hour, depending on the traffic, could be an hour, uh, just west of here, uh, on the fantastic shores of the Parramatta River, a hospital committed to uh, the service of veterans, but also the broader community, and a place uh, where a lot of learning happens. There's a number of students here I recognise that have come out to visit Concord, uh, and also medical students that are trained there, and nursing and physio students. So that connection between University, uh, obviously where I'm employed, but hospital where I'm based is a rich part of the story that I'll be sharing with you uh, today. For those people just coming, there's a couple of seats down here which have your name on them if you're interested. So let's get to the myths. Enough of that introduction, Andrew. Let's get to the guts of this uh, because that'll get you into asking questions sooner rather than later. And uh, we had a bit of brainstorming to try and figure out which of the myths are we going to um, talk about tonight. So I chose those, I suppose, that are a bit more topical and I suppose a bit more common. Uh, and you'll have your own take on these. And I have to say that the, the advice or the discussion we're having tonight really is about uh, challenging you to think about how you use your medicines, how do you gather information about them. It's obviously not for specific advice on what you should do about your health. That's something you should always discuss with, of course, your doctor or pharmacist. Uh, I'd always lean towards a pharmacist, but I know that, of course, uh, that's a really important collaboration. And these myths really came from things that came up both in my career and also the things that people have said to me, uh, where people, I suppose, stumble a bit on, on some of the facts. So what I'm going to try and do is talk about each of them. So let's work our way through this particular uh, six myths along the way. So let's do the first one. Generic medicines don't work as well as brand name medicines. So just to make sure we're on the same page, you would know that uh, many medicines are available in different brands, uh, and sometimes the medicine that comes onto the market after the, the first innovator or brand name medicine, we call the generic. And of course, the word generic conjures up a whole range of images. If you're in the supermarket shelf and you're looking at, say, the flower section, and there's the, 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 the brand name products, which are a bit more expensive, there's the home brand product, which you might call a generic, we usually have this association with the word that generic means um, not the same quality, but certainly less expensive. So we're willing to compromise based on price, the quality. And I have to start, if you fall asleep right now, the first thing I'd like you to remember is that all medicines in Australia are tested 
to make sure they meet the same quality and safety standards. So that'll be a message that I'll be talking about today. So this is uh, the type of comment that I'm sure you may have heard, uh, either from friends or family, uh, or perhaps if you're a pharmacist, and I recognise a few of you incognito in the room, uh, you may have heard this from uh, your, uh, the people that you're lucky enough to uh, serve. Uh, I tried the generic one. It disagreed with me because it had a different flavour. Uh, it had a lemon flavour. Uh, down the bottom here, one thing I worry about is when you uh, take in your script and the pharmacist asks you if you want a generic, and I wonder if that's okay. I mean, I don't know anything about generics in that sense, and, you know, there's a lot of information. So these are the type of questions, I suppose, that come up from time to time. And um, has anyone heard people say that one brand doesn't work for me? Has anyone? Thank you for for either being honest or feeling for responding to me. So I want to take you through just a bit of insight into this. We have a list of medicines that are approved for use in Australia. It's called the Australian Register of Therapeutic Goods. And I typed into that list a word called simvastatin. Some of you may recognise the name simvastatin. It's actually the active ingredient in all of these products. And if you can't see down the back there, there's 26. So if we go... Here's the brand name on one side, and here's the company that makes them, but all of them have exactly the same active ingredient. Now, we don't make it easy for people, do we? That's the same medicine in 26 brands. I know the pharmacists in the room say, but Andrew, of course, not all of those 26 brands are available for sale in Australia, and you're right. Only 16 of these, 16, mind you, are on the pharmaceutical benefit scheme. So the first thing I'd like to say is to uh, know that a particular medicine may be available uh, in, uh, or a particular active ingredient may be available as many alternative brands. And I use the word alternative rather than necessarily generic. To get away from that, it's, uh, it's cheap and inferior. But we often use the language of a generic branded medicine or an innovator brand or a brand name medicine. So that's part of the, the language uh, that we look at today. So some people would say, well, I take one of these, but it really doesn't you know, respond with me well. So let, let me tell you a bit about how we test these medicines. So um, my dad is a fantastic electrician and a fantastic father of four sons and 10 grandsons. And, uh, but he's not a very good pharmacologist. And he said to me a couple of times, he said, Andrew, this dose of medicine that I'm taking here that achieves this concentration in the body, why don't I just take more of it and get, get all the benefit that it provides? And I say, well, Dad, I start to draw this on a, on a napkin and I start to plot it out and his eyes glaze over with nausea, thinking, why did I send him to university? Um, and the point here is that this is the nature of the pharmacological response. And we know that... Uh, what we know about medicines is that the response we get, the benefits we get from a medicine, are related to the dose that we give and the concentration we achieve in the body. And that's an important principle of drug action. So the probability of a benefit of a medicine, the, the beneficial effects of a medicine, is low at a low dose because we have a low concentration in the body. Um, and we're always weighing up the idea that a medicine can actually uh, provide benefit, of course, that's why we use medicines, but also that there's the potential for harms. And being uh, informed about those harms means that we're forewarned, and that's part of our discussion today. So choosing the right medicine, the right dose, is a balance of these two things. Um, so we're always trading off that, you know, at a higher dose of, a, of the medicine, and this is what I explained to my dad, you get a high concentration, you certainly get the benefits, but you carry the risk of the unwanted effects. So this is the, the balance that we're always trying to strike uh, along the way. So when we're testing different brands of a medicine, what we're interested in, in doing is to 
move to the next slide, um, remember that actually you can have too much of a good thing. So that's an important part of um, this context uh, along the way. So here I've drawn a line on this graph. It's a particular concentration in the bloodstream, and we know that that concentration is associated with a certain amount of benefit and a certain risk of unwanted effects or harmful effects. So by measuring the concentration, we know, because it determines the response to a medicine, that's a very good guide for how we might compare different brands of a medicine. So when we have uh, a alternative brands of a medicine of the same drug that has the same amount of active ingredient in those different brands, if it achieves the same concentration in the body, we can have confidence that actually it leads to the same beneficial effects, but also the same potential for harmful effects. So that's one of the really important principles of how drugs do what they do. Um, and I, I mentioned this before, but alternative brands, in the same way that innovator brands, the first on the market, or other alternative brands, they must all meet the same strict quality and safety standards. And they need to have the TGA stamp of approval. Now, the TGA, of course, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, they regulate medicines, but particularly focus on safety, quality, and efficacy. So they test medicines to make sure that there's clear evidence that they're not only meet the very high standards, but they're also safe and effective uh, along the way. So if we go back to uh, our medicines here, this is the 26 versions of the active ingredient, uh, Simvastatin. There's a little uh, tricky insight here you might look at. If you run your eye down this list of the companies that are uh, bringing these to market, some of these are Australian and some are uh, Australian and owned by overseas companies. It's a, it's a broad church of suppliers. We know that actually if you organise them by different types of suppliers, that actually of those 26, there's only 14 different uh, brands, or there's, sorry, 26 different brands, but 14 different suppliers or companies that supply them. And here's the thing, if a company has two different brands, let's have a look at these two, then actually the tablets are often identical. So let, let me just explain that to you. So it'll be the same tablet, only different label and packaging. Uh, along the way. So the only thing different here is not, when someone says to me that the brands don't work, the first thing I look at is who has actually made those tablets. Let, let me give you this particular example. Um, the pharmacist in the room would know there's a, a, a resource called MIMS. It's a very useful a resource for looking up information about medicines. It has a section there we can look at um, what different tablets look like. The other thing you could do, of course, is open the packet and have a look as well. That's the analogue approach, not the digital approach. Um, and when you look at Zocor tablets, this is what they look like. When you look at Lipex tablets made by the same company, this is what they look like. Now, I'm not sure if there's a mirror there, but actually they're identical. And that's because they're made by exactly the same company to the same uh, standards. So when people say to me, uh, I don't like Lipex, it, it doesn't really work for me, uh, I prefer Zocor, then I say, that, that's uh, interesting. Uh, and it reminds me that the way we respond to medicines partly, of course, relies on the, on the medicine, but also it's about the natural course of our health problems and our health and well-being, but also that important dimension of who we are and what we think about our medicines. It gets a little bit more complicated when we look at, say, other brands. So here is an alternative brand of uh, Simvastatin. Uh, these are two different manufacturers, and, and while the tablets are different, you know, they look kind of similar, and, and that's part of the strategy, I'm I suppose. You'd like your alternative brands to look like the one that was first on the market uh, along the way. 
Now we know from other research that the colour and shape of tablets is a really important guide for some people when they're uh, managing their medicines. So some people would know that I take you know, this uh, tablet in the evening, they know its shape and they know its colour, so they rely on that. So for those people switching the brands could actually be a little bit tricky because it might undermine their own strategies for managing their medicines. But they should rest assured that it's got the same amount of the active ingredient in it and it's been tested to make sure that it actually achieves the same concentrations. Um, but you shouldn't just believe me, you should look at um, bigger studies. So here's one of the interesting studies that came out earlier this year in one of the leading medical journals in the US. It was a study where they looked at 90,000 people. That's not 90, that's 90,000 people. Everything's big in the US. Sorry about that, Lisa. Um, <laughs> they actually looked at people who were commencing a statin medicine. Remember, statins are there to lower your cholesterol. We'll talk more about them in a moment. And they looked at a group of people who start, were started on a generic version or a, a brand name, and they looked at the outcomes that they had. And they did a bit of a matched analysis and they linked the information about their health. So they looked at what happened to them. So they followed them over time and they were able to see whether or not they filled their prescriptions. Were they motivated to get their medicines? Because you need to take your medicines. We'll talk about that to get the benefit. And what happened to them? And what this study showed for the, probably the first time, uh, compared with those initiated on a brand name statin, patients initiated on the generic statin were more likely to take their medicine uh, and they had a lower rate of turning up to hospital. Now, those last two things are, are linked. If you take your medicine, you're more likely to get the benefits from them. This may be a bit of a quirk of the US system where cost was clearly an important issue and generic um, medicines are likely to be less expensive, so people were more likely to adhere to it. So this was one of the first uh, start, well, not first, but the first study to show that you know, generics may actually be better. Now, to be honest, I didn't believe it in total, so I, I went to look at a whole range of other uh, studies. And here's one of them in the leading medical journal, JAMA. It's from a few years back and it looked at a whole bunch of generic versus brand name medicines for cardiovascular disease. And it combined data, it's one of the, the strongest forms of uh, evidence information, so a, a systematic and careful review of those studies, combining the information where it's appropriate according to strict guidelines. And they looked at nine different medicines, 47 controlled trials, that's thousands of patients and they concluded that the evidence does not support the notion that a brand name drug used by cardiovascular disease are superior to generic drugs. And, and that's what really we know and we expect from when these medicines are used out there. One of the more controversial areas would be in the, in the area of epilepsy. There's been a lot of discussion about this. And I won't go into it in too much detail, but again, this is one of those studies where they uh, brought together a whole range of different studies and looked at them as a collection uh, to, to glean all the information that came out from them. Many of the, the studies in the literature in this particular area aren't well designed or well controlled, but the ones that are really confirm that there's no difference between a, a generic medicine or a brand name medicine. So the alternative brands are equally effective along the way. What's more important is that a person understands what they're taking, why they're taking it, and they adhere to that medicine. So it's a really important part of this picture. Um, the other question that often gets put to me is that a generic medicine, a new product that comes on the market, is only tested in healthy volunteers compared to the one that's on the, on the market and the formulation. So we call this bioequivalence testing, where you measure the concentrations. And people say to me, it's not the same as developing medicines, and it's not. Um, and, but the important thing to remember, the very principles, the, the mathematical calculation and the design of this means that we can link information about the efficacy and safety of this product that's on the market 
with this new alternative brand on the market because they are equivalent. Bioequivalent means they achieve the same concentrations in the body. And people say to me, that's not enough information. And then I say to them, but these principles are used in the development of every new medicine. So some of the people in the room might recognise the different steps that we use in developing a new medicine and bringing it to market. And there's many different formulations that are actually tested during the development of a new medicine. And it's exactly the same testing principles uh, along the way. So we can't throw out uh, the idea that bioequivalence testing isn't enough. Um, because in doing, throwing that out, we're throwing out the bathwater and the baby and as well as the bath because that's the whole system that we have. Now this system is actually in this mechanism of testing has served us well for decades and it's internationally recognised. So I think um, you, know, you should have some confidence. So some take home messages on myth number one. You can wake up in a minute because we're going to do myth number two, it might be more interesting. Um, recognise that alternative brands have the same amount of active ingredient but they may have different labelling and packaging. That could be the only difference in some cases. Uh, it may be a different colour and shape. So if that's what you rely on to take your medicines, you need to be really careful uh, if you're switching between them. It may have different inactive ingredients or excipients. Uh, we can talk about this a bit more, but um, we know that the inactive ingredients may uh, vary from person to person and how they may respond to them. So just a quick example might be lactose is involved in some dose forms and you would be aware that some people have lactose intolerance, so that's not suitable for them. Um, but alternative brands must meet the same quality standards and they're tested using bioequivalence testing to make sure that they have the same concentration and therefore we know that they have the same benefits and harms, so we need to understand that. So that's our first myth. Are you exhausted? Can, we get, can I go on? I'll go on. Um, number two is can pain relievers target specific parts of the body? Uh, and this one is, has come up from time to time and an important one that we're going to now have uh, a quick look at, uh, just an introductory video. on. The reason I wanted to show that video wasn't necessarily to make a comment particularly about the uh, Nurofen products, but it's one example, of course, of uh, a commonly uh, marketed medicine, analgesic uh, medicine, that uh, targets pain, and, and I'm sure you know a number of others. Um, and really, the, the critical interest in this, from my point of view, really came down to that uh, idea that um, people may have a misconception that a particular product is only for a certain type of pain. And what worried me, which was highlighted there, obviously with a bit of levity, is the idea that people might take uh, a particular product for their headache or for their back pain. Uh, we really are not understanding you know, the implication uh, for that. Um, so I need to also step back to think about some of the principles of uh, how drugs do what they do. We have to remember that um, you know, we take a medicine, then something happens, and we get the pharmacological effect. But really what we're trying to do uh, in pharmacology, in clinical pharmacology, in the quality use of medicines, is to choose the right drug and the right dose to achieve the right outcome. So it's not just pain relief. It actually might be to help you function better uh, to get on and do your, your, your thing. Uh, and to appreciate that actually the drug must first get into the bloodstream and then it gets to the site of where the pain is, uh, it leads to the pharmacological effect that could be pain relief, and then it helps you do what you need to do. So when it says fast targeted relief, the fact that it might get there quicker might mean that the drug could start working quicker, but that's not necessarily the case. And you'll often see some fairly sly uh, interpretations, if you like, of what is true, it gets into the blood quicker, 
but it doesn't necessarily mean if it's here quicker that we achieve the outcome any quicker. So that's one of those uh, uh, narrow interpretations of the, the scientific uh, information uh, along the way. So we call this uh, particular paradigm here pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. And I think if you can try and uh, remember those words, and at the next dinner party you're at, just after, just after the main course before sweets are on, they're topping up their red wine, just trot out those words and start to explain them. You'll see what happens to me every time. People start looking at their watch, you know, and they start going, is that the time already, darling? I think we've got to go. But, but of course, we know that these principles underpin what dose we should um, uh, be using along the way. So let me tell you a little bit about the dose form that might be for fast targeted relief and the outcome we're after, which could be pain um, uh, management or pain uh, intensity of uh, reduction of pain intensity. Now between the dose form and the response are a whole range of other steps that we know about uh, and I uh, have the great privilege to train pharmacists in. I use that word privilege because they see it as a, a combination sedative and laxative you know during the lectures it's a, during the lectures it's a sedative during the exam it's a laxative uh, along the way but these are the principles that remind us that when we take a medicine it gets into our bloodstream and goes to many different parts of our body some of which gets to the site of where that medicine needs to work and that is the reality of how most medicines work um, one of the things that you might immediately say to me is what about when we target pain by directly applying it to somewhere this is one of my favourite studies that um, uh, I wrote about a long time ago now, and uh, I was uh, in when I collaborated with Professor Rick Day at St Vincent's Hospital, who's a, a clinical pharmacologist and a, and a bike rider, so he knows about sore knees. Uh, this particular study, they applied diclofenac gel to. Uh, so, sorry, this study looked at people who had infl inflammation and uh, joint uh, degeneration, so it'd be like uh, osteoarthritis would be a good example. Uh, and they wanted to get some local pain relief, so they applied diclofenac gel to one knee and a placebo to the other. So it looked like the gel, but they rubbed it on. Then they measured concentrations in their bloodstream, and they looked at concentrations uh, in the uh, alternate knee. So you could see uh, this is with the active treatment, and here is the placebo. And you'll see that there's no difference. So even though we thought you're applying it to the knee, you would get all the benefit only in that knee. Actually, you saw the benefit in the placebo knee as well. So it meant that at least partly the response here, and that this study also looked at pain and inflammation, uh, identified that really the part of the pharmacological effect, even when we apply it locally, is that it gets into our bloodstream to a certain extent and provides uh, benefit uh, along the way. So that idea of targeting pain is something we need to really uh, knock on the head and appreciate that choosing the right medicine for your pain, taking it in the right dose, is a lot better uh, than necessarily uh, using uh, a brand that will only target pain. So that'll avoid hopefully some of that duplication along the way. So the next one is it's safe because it's natural. Has anyone heard this one before? Okay, I think that might be obvious. Uh, and it starts with this quotation, which the students in the audience are groaning about because they use it in every talk. All substances are poisons. There is none which is not a poison. It's the right dose that differentiates a poison from a remedy. So that's a really important premise about any medicine that can provide uh, benefit. Uh, so it's a really old quotation, but still very relevant uh, today. Uh, and one that serves us well when we look at using medicine safely and effectively. The other thing to say about many complementary alternative medicines that are on the market is that you know, they're often a long way from the plant, the natural bit. They're often, you know, being chemically extracted and processed into a solid dose form. 
Uh, so there has been, if you like, some manipulation there uh, away from nature per se. And that aligns very much with uh, what we know about many of the medicines that are on the shelf at the moment. They're often identified initially in uh, plants. Uh, aspirin would be the classic example. Isolated or the elements of aspirin, uh, the chemical aspirin, were identified in the bark of the, the willow tree and extracted from there and then purified along the way. And I've got another one that's coming up later. I don't want to give too much away because it does involve a, uh, a guess and see if you can identify it. When it comes to, when people say to me this drug is um, free of side effects, I usually quote back this quotation from Sir Derek Dunlop, who was the inventor of the uh, safety system in the UK. We have a blue card system here for reporting adverse events. In the UK, they have a yellow card system. And this is the quote, show me a drug with no side effects and I'll show you a drug with no actions. And the point here is that if a medicine is going to provide benefit, as I alluded to, it carries a risk of harms. And this, this can be adapted for the purposes of our discussion tonight, that if, you, if a herbal medicine improves your something health but is side effect free, then it may actually be effect free. You need to appreciate that along the way. Um, I should also clarify some language. I often uh, see this is for the students particularly when they're writing their assignments and they write complementary medicines, then I think they're giving me a compliment. They're saying how dashing I look, uh, which can work. It's a very good therapy. Or it could be free. It could be, here's your medicine, it's free. But actually we're talking about complementary medicines used as well as other things uh, along the way. I should also separate these two things. Complementary medicines are used as well as uh, other initiatives. Um, and what's a lot more risky enterprise, and I won't talk about tonight that much, is where people choose to only take alternative medicines. And unfortunately, from time to time, we do see people who might say, for example, have a serious condition like cancer and choose to have alternative medicines. Now, just a word or on that. Um, I'm a conventionally trained uh, pharmacist, and uh, obviously I, I understand the principles of how drug, drugs work and what's in medicines that makes them work. Uh, but importantly, it's not my job to judge the health choices people make. It is my job to help give people information, and that's part of the discussion that we're having today. So I, I would hate to think that people, uh, you know, uh, think I'm poo-pooing uh, complementary medicines because, you know, I'm going to show you that there is some good evidence that some of them work. There's also a lot of humour in this area uh, too. Um, look at this, acupuncture, aromatherapy, herbal tea, this could be a homeopathic killer. Um, so Australians love complementary and alternative medicines, and here's just a few of them. Some of them you might recognise uh, along the way. And actually, we know that the money spent on complementary and alternative therapies almost matches and maybe even exceeds what we spend on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme uh, in Australia. Um, a survey which was put out by the National Prescribing Service some time back now looked at a snapshot of people over the age of 50. This is a really insightful study. It looked at the number of medicines that people were taking. It also looked at where they got information about their medicines. I was really hoping they would all write pharmacists first. Most of them wrote friends and family members. Okay? And even the internet was further down. So it's a, a reminder about where people get info from. But this stat was in there. Complementary medicines were used almost by half of the participants in the survey. But 87% of them said that they used them with their conventional medicines, their prescription medicines. And I've had a, a decade-long interest in studying the interactions between herbs and prescription medicines. So these are some of the more commonly used herbal medicines that are on the market. Some of these you'd recognise. Um, uh, garlic's right up there. Green tea, very popular. Echinacea, particularly you know, in the seasonal change. We've got medicines like cranberry and also over here the herbal antidepressant, St John's wort. 
Uh, and I'd like to talk about that, St John's wort, and how that might interact with some of the other medicines than when they come together uh, along the way. So St John's wort is widely used, particularly in, in other countries around the world, and it's, it's widely agreed that the evidence suggests that it's about equally effective to a low dose of a conventional antidepressant. The problem is that it has a, a really interesting pharmacological effect on the body. It regulates the expression of different enzymes. They're the proteins that help us break down different medicines along the way. So that uh, helps us understand more about how efficiently we can start to break down and excrete a particular medicine. Uh, so this is a, a, a really interesting herbal medicine. And here's some of the, um, I suppose, uh, uh, data from a range of medicines. I, I won't go through them in too much detail. I'll just choose one of them here. Cyclosporin is a medicine that is used to uh, suppress your immune system. It's particularly important if you've had a transplant. So, for example, if you've had a kidney transplant, you might be taking cyclosporin to stop your body rejecting that organ, which is keeping you alive. So there's a fine balance between the dose of cyclosporin you need uh, and, of course, uh, the, the risk of rejecting the organ or even having side effects uh, along the way. And what we know is that if you take St John's water, and I could hear someone saying, well, I can't take the other medicines because they may interact, I'll take something that's natural. St John's wort has been shown to reduce concentrations in the blood and lead to episodes of rejection. And there's a number of medicines here. So what St John's wort is doing is actually reducing the effectiveness of medicines. Well, you might say that's okay because there's not side effects, but in some situations that's really life-threatening. And one of those situations has uh, been some research that we've been involved in over quite a number of years now looking at the anticoagulant warfarin. This is the medicine that people use to reduce their risk of stroke. People would know you need to get the dose right and it's in a fine balance. We studied a whole range of herbal medicines. This is just half of the ones that we've studied. Um, and we found that St John's Ward, if you take it, it reduces the response and puts people at risk of having a stroke. We also showed that if you're taking a cranberry juice extract and if you take enough of it, it can increase the, the, your response to uh, warfarin and increase your risk of bleeding and that's been supported by a number of uh, case studies, although it's a bit of a controversial area because it probably depends on the type of cranberry juice that you have. Now, you'll see that the other herbal medicines didn't necessarily interact. Um, and ginkgo has been one of those that really we often warn people about because there's been many reports of people taking warfarin and ginkgo biloba together and having episodes of bleeding. And it reminds me that three things are needed for an interaction, a herb, a drug and a person. And the characteristics of that person could mean that they're more vulnerable uh, to these effects. So we need to keep that in mind uh, as well. So the summary here is that so-called natural products uh, we, we, we know that they carry some risk of potential harm, so we need to keep that in mind uh, along the way. They may interact with other medicines. And really the important thing, which is happening more and more now, people are willing to say to their pharmacist or doctor, I'm taking this, does it interact? Uh, and that's really good because about 10 years ago, even maybe five, most people would not necessarily share that information with their doctor or pharmacist. But I think that's really changing. And the other part of it is that doctors and pharmacists often didn't ask, but I think that's um, not the case now. Most people do ask. So many different herbal medicines that are on the market. But I wanted to digress just briefly, um, only for about half an hour, um, to talk about, no, just quickly, about natural products and Vincent van Gogh. What is the link? Well, let's see if you can figure it out. Um, there's been an enormous amount of uh, literature uh, looking at, so what plagued Vincent van Gogh in his, in his life? And these are some of the symptoms that have been identified uh, along the way there. So visual disturbances, and ultimately, of course, um, very sadly, he, uh, 
he uh, committed suicide uh, along the way. But there was episodes of self-harm, particularly uh, and, uh, um, in dealing with the challenges that he had to face. And there's been uh, all sorts of medical experts that have looked at the literature and the information we have about Vincent, including his paintings, which give away a bit of a key, about what might be the possible condition that he had. And we knew that he was right into drinking his own paint solvents. Sorry, Vincent, but it was true. Uh, he probably had uh, challenges with mental health. Uh, but one hypothesis that is really interesting is digitalis toxicity. And uh, this will be for the more senior members of the audience, see if they can make the link. So here is some of the medical literature that's looked at this. Did Vincent van Gogh have intoxication? This is just to prove I've never had an original thought. Someone's always thought of something before me. Uh, and they talk about this thing here called xanthopsia. Xanthopsia is actually one of the side effects of digitalis uh, toxicity along the way. So, and you know, yellow, seeing yellow tinges around your, hang on a minute, he used a lot of yellow in a lot of his paintings. It's coming together now, we can see that there was a few other uh, things that look vaguely familiar when we match up the symptoms along the way. You, but you're saying to me, I can hear you screaming, that's not evidence, Andrew, that's just association. It's not even a, a, a plausible link along the way. But here is the link. Does anyone recognise this particular plant? Foxglove. There's some experts in the room. This is Foxglove. This was taken uh, just outside of Leeds uh, last year when I was over there walking with my family and it was growing just as a weed uh, along the way. But of course we know it's a rich source of digitalis alkaloids of which we have isolated and purified. Not we, I'm talking here very generally. <laughs> experts have and for a generation we've had this medicine, digoxin, lenoxin being one of the brands which we, is a critical medicine for managing heart rhythm problems previously used for heart failure although fading uh, at the light. But we know it's a medicine that carries a range of side effects including those ones that I described to you a bit earlier. Now the association is still fairly weak isn't it until we saw this bit of information here. Here is uh, Dr Paul Gachet who took care of Vincent van Gogh during the months of his uh, final part of his life, but hello, what have we got here? Is there any, you know, do, am, I, am I dreaming there? Natural products carry a risk. We need to understand what that risk is. And we may have had a better painter if we knew about the risks of foxglove intoxication. It was fairly, fairly lame, wasn't it, really? Let's go into the last four, the second part of my talk, and uh, I promise I'll, I'll try and wrap up sooner rather than later. I'm feeling better now so I can stop taking my medicines. This strikes to the very heart of why we take medicines. We know that medicines can provide an enormous amount of benefit for us. Uh, and we typically take them to either treat something or prevent something. That's why we use medicines. Um, and if we look at, for example, treating different conditions, you'd recognise some of these conditions. Well, we might take a medicine for a relatively time-limited period. So if we look at the calendar and we've got, let's say we've got pain, we might just take the, the medicine just on those days where we've got pain. So that uh, myth, the, the idea that I'm feeling better now, I can stop taking my medicine, probably works for most analgesics, depending on the nature of the pain you have and how you best manage it. We know for infections that uh, antibiotics have a critical role, and you would all know that there's a greater focus now more than ever on using antibiotics uh, judiciously, only when they're indicated. And we're seeing more and more that the period of time we might need to use them is starting to change, particularly if someone's otherwise healthy uh, and well, and they're recovering quickly. Um, but we can't generalise that they should be all, you know, only looked in, looking at symptoms. We know that currently the guidelines clearly recommend usually between seven and ten days with a review to see how people are going. So it's time limited uh, along the way. 
But we know that there's a whole bunch of other medicines. In fact, the most common reason people take medicines is to prevent something. So if I look at the condition of having elevated blood pressure, which in and of itself is not a problem, but over time, of course, increases your risk of cardiovascular disease, we'd like to take a medicine that might lower your blood pressure back into the normal range. And really, it's not about lowering blood pressure. It's actually about reducing your risk of heart disease. So we take the medicine to lower your blood pressure, but really we take the medicine to reduce your risk of heart disease. Now, having very low blood pressure does have symptoms. Having high blood pressure or normal blood pressure really doesn't feel any different. So to be guided by how you feel is not a good choice in this particular regard. So for these medicines, we need to take them usually regularly and usually every day. Most medicines are designed to take once a day or twice a day, uh, particularly when we're looking at a medicine, say, for cardiovascular disease. Um, but we know that for some people and for some reasons that sometimes they miss a few doses. Uh, and this is a really interesting area of research and Parissa Aslani in the Faculty of Pharmacy uh, and a number of the, her students and, and team members have been looking at how best to use medicines and how we can understand more about what we call adherence uh, and to help motivate people and devise strategies to help them achieve using their medicine safely. But it sort of poses the question as well, how much adherence is enough? So, you know, how many do I actually need to take? And, and it was um, informed by this particular study which came out um, this year as well, it was in the American Heart Journal. And it looked at um, people who have had a myocardial infarction, that's a heart attack, and they looked at medication adherence. So there's very good information if you've had a heart attack, there's a, a combination of medicines that you're likely to be recommended to receive, and they include a medicine to lower your, bl uh, your blood cholesterol, to control your heart rate and your blood pressure. There's a few others as well uh, that might be in this, uh, I won't say cocktail, but we know that they're important. This particular study looked at whether or not people were taking their medicines based on filling their prescriptions, and whether or not they had further complications. Uh, particularly, you know, if they came back into hospital with a complication of this particular condition. And what they showed was that if you were non-adherent, that's the blue line here, then you know, this was the rate of reoccurrence. 30, up to, you know, over this period of time, um, you know, there'd be 30% of people who'd have a problem. Um, if you were fully adherent, you took it as directed, you could substantially reduce your risk and you'd do a lot better. But, you know, if you're only partially adherent, and that was designed as to, uh, defined as taking less than 80%, then actually it was no better than not taking them at all. Uh, which was obviously a bit of a concern. So it sort of led to this summary. Patients need to adhere to 80% or more of their prescription medicines to reduce their risk of hospital readmission after a heart attack. And I don't want to generalise to all conditions, but really the benefit of a medicine comes from when we take it regularly. Uh, and we're going to talk about that in the, the next myth as well. I should also say that the decision to stop your medicine is one you should always think about carefully. And again, this is about general advice. But we know that for some medicines, we should not stop them abruptly because we can have a rebound or a reoccurrence, uh, or even what we might call withdrawal effect from some of those medicines. Many of those medicines that affect your mood, particularly the antidepressants or sleep, um, for different clinical conditions that affect the brain, we know that if you stop those medicines abruptly, it can actually have a deleterious effect. So if the decision is made to stop, obviously in discussion with your doctor, you need to move uh, and reduce those doses very slowly uh, along the way. Um, adherence is complex, it's made up of different dimensions and it recognises the fact that we are humans and there's things in our environment but also in our knowledge, our beliefs about medicines and even our social circumstances that start to impact on this. And it's a very active area of research that we're really, uh, really trying to partner with uh, consumers to uh, improve the way they take their medicines. But information's a critical ingredient. You can see that 
If you don't understand how to take your medicine safely, the results could be hair-raising. So it's important to appreciate that as well. Last two myths, I'm almost there. Um, the next one is, uh, which is a personal favourite of mine, I'm taking a statin, I can eat what I like. Has anyone ever heard people say this? You know, you, um, maybe some nodding, no one's going to actually put their hand up, uh, I realise, but these medicines obviously provide us with an enormous amount of benefit, and I'll talk about that in just a moment. But what we do see is that people start to uh, mod not modify their diet, and don't just believe me, um, recognise this broadly in the community, which you may have identified walking around you, given the number of people who are taking these medicines. We know that um, there's other studies, this is an interesting one here, which has looked at um, uh, different time trends for intake of calories, over here, this is calories, and for fat intake, for people who are statin users, that's the group here, statin users, and uh, non-users, so people not using a statin. So they looked at their dietary modification. Now, initially when statins came out, there was always really clear advice that you should modify your diet, stop smoking, start exercising because that'll improve your cardiovascular disease risk, uh, and of course take these medicines as well. And you can see that over time that has really shifted, and this paper which came out uh, this year as well really identified for the first time that statin users were eating more fat and more sugar, and this was the title that got everyone's attention, gluttony in the time of statins, so it's a little bit uh, headline grabbing. But this was the comment um, which I uh, thought was quite interesting. We believe that when physicians prescribe statins, the goal is to decrease patients' cardiovascular risk that cannot be achieved without medications, not to empower them to put butter on their steak. So you can see that they were obviously very annoyed. Now, the, the real issue here is that statins provide us with enormous amount of benefit. That's the true part, particularly for those people at risk. But the evidence we have that says that they work come from these really big studies. This is one called the Heart Protection Study, which was a landmark at the time, about 10 years ago. And the benefit it's provided is described here and how it can improve the situation and prevent problems. But what's overlooked is just two lines in this paper, two lines, and I've even abbreviated them um, shorter. Um, initial screening guidance was provided about modifying your diet and other risk factors for cardiovascular disease. So the benefits that we have that come from these big trials are on the back of people modifying their diet to, be, to make sure that they eat you know, in a balanced way from the different food groups. They increase their physical activity. They drink wine in moderation and they do things like stop smoking. So of course a statin is not a replacement for those things that are really important and the benefit could even be unwound if people are having fatty foods and certainly not adhering to other opportunities to reduce their cardiovascular risk. So remember it's not just about lowering cholesterol, it's about reducing your risk of cardiovascular disease. Last myth, and I promise to be quick, Lisa. So this one is um, quite interesting. You've probably heard uh, about you know, some of the things that have been said about alcohol and prescription medicines don't ever mix. Uh, and to, there's a true truth to some of this, and I'll have to start with the truth. Um, you may have seen these labels, and the pharmacists among you know them very well. These are what we call ancillary labels. They're little messages or, or reminders that we put on medicines to help you know about how alcohol might affect a particular medicine. And we know that for alcohol may exaggerate the effects of some medicines, causing excessive sedation. It could even affect or be dangerous if you're driving. We know that, particularly for sedatives that cause drowsiness, then alcohol will make that even more excessive. And there are some medicines where there might be an interaction, and immediately people will be thinking antibiotics. That's, that's, the, that's the reason. So I've spent um, a bit of time today talking to different people about antibiotics and alcohol. 
And I'm sure there are some people who have heard this myth, I can't drink, I'm on antibiotics. Or I had one drink, I was all over the shop, I was on antibiotics. And and the point here is that, and the, the truth is that actually antibiotics and alcohol don't interact. But I'll get to the nub of that story. And I can hear some pharmacists in the room shouting already, but what about metronidazole? Metronidazole is an antibiotic that treats different types of infections. It's not that commonly used, but certainly is out there. It's a, a brand called Flagyl and many others uh, as well. Uh, and, you know, the, the concern was that we get uh, a thing called a disulfurin reaction. This is where people get flushing. They get uh, exaggerated effect of alcohol, and they also have big changes in their blood pressure. So this was a study that set about trying to measure and see if they could give a group of people who didn't know they were getting metronidazole a dose of alcohol and they were comparing it to when they were receiving metronidazole or not. And they show no difference in their blood pressure, uh, blood alcohol concentration, no difference in their blood pressure, no difference in facial flushing. And they concluded that this study shows that metronidazole does not affect blood uh, acid aldehyde concentrations, which is what we thought the mechanism was. Uh, it doesn't have objective or subjective effects that make it sound like it causes this reaction. Um, they can't exclude, of course, that there may be some people who are more at risk. Uh, and it probably means that a, a warning when you're taking that antibiotic may be useful. But the real reason that people have a problem when they're on antibiotics uh, is that they probably overdo it. And moderation is a, is a critical part of it. So I've done a few media interviews today, and it's quite interesting how many people interpreted this myth, if I was busting it, if you like, to saying, we can drink as much as we like. And I said, well, actually, no. It's about moderation. It's about using alcohol responsibly. Um, but here's the real reason. You know, if you've been prescribed antibiotics, and particularly if they're indicated for you, you're probably unwell. And if you're unwell, you're dehydrated. You're probably, you know, not as feeling as chipper as usual, probably not eating well, and you're certainly not sleeping well. So it's not surprising that a glass or two of alcohol might affect you excessively uh, along the way. So I don't think it's the interaction with the... Uh, there's no evidence of an interaction with the antibiotics, but certainly there is an interaction with how you're feeling uh, along the way. So I'm at the end of my lecture today, and I wanted to leave you with a couple of take-home messages. Um, what are those things you can do that can help you be, um, bust myths every day? Well... Know the active ingredient name of your medicine, not just the brand name. Know that medicines come in different brands. Uh, ask for information. How will this medicine help me? And uh, what do you think are the harmful effects that I should look out for and avoid? Um, know what your medicine is for. That's a really critical piece of information. Keep, us up to, keep an up-to-date medicines list that has the active ingredient name and perhaps the brand name and what's it for on your list. We're doing some research at the moment with some of the honour students who are here, and we've had the privilege to go and visit people in their homes and ask them how they manage their medicines. One of the really interesting things that's come up is that those people who seem to have one GP and one pharmacist do really well in navigating the transitions between the health system, which is where people really are at risk. So that's the team that can work for you as a consumer and something that we, we recommend all the time. So I'm going to finish uh, with this quote. Words are, of course, the most powerful drug um, used by mankind. And I'd replace you know, words there with the information. And knowing about what your medicines can do and how they can help you is a critical part of it. And with that, I'm going to finish and hopefully answer some of your questions. Thank you.
Thank you, Andrew. Great myth busting. So uh, I'm inviting people to come up to the microphone. We have time for questions and discussions. Uh, students, this is your chance to grill your professor, but uh, everybody else can come up too, so please. Uh, and I'd, I'd like to actually make a couple of observations, Andrew, because I traveled all over the world and what I really notice is that these myths are absolutely universal and they need, they need busting all over the place. And the other observation is that your dad should meet my dad. And then we're really gonna be in big trouble. So my dad is uh, 91. He's very savvy, he's on the internet a lot, which is very dangerous sometimes, so he gets a lot of information there. And one thing he knows is he says, at my age, actually, you know, I shouldn't be taking the doses of medicines that younger people are taking. So I went out and I bought this pill splitter, and I brought it home, and I just precisely cut my pills in half, and that gives me half the dose, right? So is that a myth, Andrew? Um. So, uh, like many uh, myths uh, in that particular area, we need to understand more about, and this is particularly the pharmacy domain, that not every dose form is the same. So some medicines, some dose forms, and by that I mean uh, tablets, we're particularly talking about if you're going to split them, a bit hard to split a capsule, it makes a bit of a mess. Um, the, the tablets, of course, um, have very different properties. So particularly the technology for drug delivery these days is really fantastic. So some are able to be split, and often those that are scored are able to be split, uh, but some are also modified release, so they're designed to release the dose of that medicine over the day. So if you split that tablet, then actually you're getting a big dose very quickly. So the best um, advice I'd give to your father is to get a friendly pharmacist uh, and go in and say, is it possible to split this particular tablet? Because you're able to look in the information that's provided, usually by the sponsor, the manufacturer, uh, and it'll give you some clear advice about whether it's safe to split that one. Um, the other uh, subtext to your question is about adjusting the dose you're taking yourself. Uh, and it, it's good to be an informed consumer, but I always encourage people to work with their clinical team to, when they're adjusting the dose to make sure it's the right one for them. Thank you. Well, he could ask his daughter, but he won't do that. So well, he has no, to ask somebody else. I know. <laughs> All right, so uh, we have a question. Thank you. I used to read the Skeptics magazine, and I was impressed. Uh, over a long period by their um, despair about the Therapeutic Goods, Goods Administration. <coughs> so my question to you is how recently has efficacy become a criterion for them? Uh, yeah, so that's a great question. So the Therapeutic Goods Administration is the regulator that oversees uh, medicines regulation in Australia. They, they determine which medicines can be marketed in Australia. And it's really important to appreciate that they use what's called a risk-based assessment strategy. So those medicines that are designed or identified as being highest risk, they have the tightest regulation. Those medicines that are identified as having the lowest risk have less regulation. Uh, and if we take two examples, let's go with a, a prescription medicine that might be used for treating severe pain. Uh, that would be very tightly regulated. There'd be very careful controls over safety, efficacy and quality. Uh, and they would have to provide evidence that not only um, that is demonstrated in clinical trials, but once it's out there in practice that there's no safety signals that suggest it's dangerous. At the other end might be a new herbal medicine that's been used for thousands of years in a country, perhaps near ours, that's now being a product that's been marketed in Australia. Uh, that, medicine, that herbal medicine may be identified based on our scheduling system as being uh, of a low safety risk. So we would, uh, Australia decides, and the TGA through different legislation, uh, puts a lower level of control over that. 
What's required is that there's evidence of the quality and the safety of that herbal medicine, but there's no explicit requirement that there needs to be clinical trials that demonstrate the efficacy. The sponsor, the company, must hold that information, and if it's ever asked for it by the regulator or others, they're meant to produce it. So you can see that given the absolute plethora of medicines that are on the market, from you know, those things available in, in pharmacies and sometimes supermarkets all the way through to prescription medicines, you know, the regulator has to deal with that divide. Um, and one way to tell whether a medicine has absolute evidence of efficacy is to look at the number on there. There's a registration number. There's one called an OSTR. R. That's for registered. That means it has evidence of efficacy. Or if it's just listed, OSTL, means that it, it's met the, the uh, requirement for coming from a reputable manufacturer. There's evidence that it's been produced in a way that's high quality and it's generally safe. So th that's, the, that's what every Australian um, needs to understand uh, along the way. What's outside of that loop, of course, is that many medicines can be purchased on the internet where we really have no regard for knowing about their quality, safety and efficacy. That's a different topic along the way. Thanks. Hi. Hi. Thanks for a great talk. Um, I wonder if you could say more about the excipients used in generic medicines. Yep. Um, I know you mentioned lactose intolerance, but I was wondering if there's other... I mean, do the, these alternative brands, do they use um, inferior excipients, if you like, and do the, the brand names use better ones? Because I've actually experienced different effects from different um, migraine meds, actually, from okay. you know, with the same active ingredient sure. where you get an upset stomach. And just one other question yep. about generics, if that's all right. Um, I was surprised to see that um, you can get one company producing two medicines that were identical with different packaging. I guess I'm stating the bleeding obvious, but is that just a marketing ploy? Uh, look, I, I'm an academic. I, I couldn't comment on marketing <laughs> uh, or perhaps the strategies that people use, but uh, you, you, that could be one line of argument. I'm, I, might even, I might even hand over to Lisa, who's an expert in that area, to talk about it in a minute. Let me come back to um, uh, the uh, excipients or the inactive ingredients. And, I remember giving a talk some time ago to um, some people and uh, a person asked me, so, you know, this tablet's meant to have five milligrams in it, but why does it weigh three grams? Uh, and this person hadn't realised that, of course, in a tablet, there is the active ingredient, which is really carefully monitored. It's designed and tested to make sure that it's reproducible in every tablet. In, able, in order to do that and have it in a, a dose form or a tablet that can be reliably stored and easily administered, uh, you do need inactive ingredients. And the science around that technology is really quite interesting. So to answer your first question, do the alternative brand products have inferior ingredients? So the answer to that is definitely no. All the ingredients that go into human medicines for human use, and even some of the veterinary medicines, must meet international standards of quality. So they would have a, a list of those excipients, the, the specifications for how they'll be tested and what evidence they have, particularly if they've got any concerns about impurities that might be there. So that, that's a, off the table as a concern because the, they must meet those quality standards. But, you know, you raise a really important thing that sometimes the inactive ingredient may start to affect us differently. Uh, and that, that's really variable, you know, in, in, uh, uh, in the community. Some people may be affected by the inactive ingredient. So what you need to be able to do is figure out, so what's in? Uh, what, if you find out a particular ingredient might affect you, um, there is a, a piece of information that goes with every prescription medicine. It's called a consumer medicines information. The last paragraph on the last page, and unfortunately sometimes there's four or five pages, um, the last paragraph will have a list of the inactive ingredients. It'll obviously have the active ingredient, but it'll tell you what's in there. It won't tell you how much, 
But you know, on the other side of it, of course, an innovator company that first made the product, they've often patented that particular formula. Um, but it can be replicated, and, and it's usually that a, an alternative brand uh, supplier, once that medicine is off patent, so that's part of the protection that's offered to a, a sponsor of the medicine for the first time to recoup their investment, uh, then we see that the ability to uh, develop a formulation that is able to match the performance of that, and usually it would involve different excipients, uh, sometimes subtly different, sometimes wildly different, uh, but typically they all must mean that the drug is delivered into the body in the same concentration. Great, thanks a lot. Thank you. I just wanted to ask about, um, it's all very well when it's a whole tablet. Like, don't get me wrong, I, I, I recommend generics. Um, I, I, initially I was thinking of eternal tablets. Mm -hmm. When somebody's prescribed half a tablet, I always give them a brand that um, can be broken in half. Sure. Um, and there are other tablets, when you try breaking them, they just crumble to pieces. Yeah, so, so that's a really uh, good point. The, the idea is that, of course, most uh, medicines are designed to be taken intact, and there's always a concern, uh, based on the nature of the formulation, that some break better than others, and often it's the, the brand name medicine which may be scored, actually may be designed to be easily broken. Uh, and, th and that's obviously, I know, Tony, you're a pharmacist and you have good experience with knowing the different dose forms and how that can work, um, you know, with a person who may need half a dose. So, you know, you're probably the best example of uh, if a person needs to take half a tablet, go and speak to their pharmacist and say which of these brands is the easiest to, to break in half. Because some of those tablets, you know, they're designed in such a way, although once they're in the body they release the drug nicely, they don't break easily, uh, and when they do break, that they may, may fall apart. Yeah. So that's an important point. We, when they're broken, they're probably going to release differently. Um, well, actually, that, that's probably not the case because okay. most of the dose forms, you know, based on what we know about dissolution and how they're designed, if they're, you know, depending on the nature of that dose form and if they're able to be broken, the release rate shouldn't be that different. It's really just the dose that's different. Mm. But um, you, you raise a good point. And, and just, just the other thing too, um, with, say, antidepressants, You've got the effect of the drug, and you've probably got an effect of a placebo effect. And, and I've had a fair few people bring back generics saying, I know it's exactly the same, but can you give me the original brand? Because sure. they've got no faith in it, so it's, and, it doesn't work. And, and Tony, you highlight a really important aspect to uh, our role as healthcare professionals to respect the choice that a person has. Our job's not to judge you know, what their experience is, but to understand it uh, and to work with them. And you're, you're right, some people much prefer a brand name, some people prefer uh, a, an alternative brand. Um, the important thing, I suppose, from a scientific point of view, and what I was trying to say in my message is to reassure people that there may be other things that influence a person's response, uh, other, but it's not the amount of drug you know, and the way that dose form works, because that is tested really carefully. Uh, you touch on placebo as well, which, you know, we could spend at least a few hours on. Um, so I won't go into that too much, but certainly it's a really important um, part of our response to medicines to acknowledge that it's not only, you know, what you do with the medicine, but those other things in you know, changing your lifestyle and perhaps certainly in the case of a person who might have a problem managing their mood, other things that can influence uh, their response. So thank you. Um, my name is Tom, I'm a student nurse. Um, I have a question for both my personal life and also for my professional life. Sure. Um, it's regarding quality control of medicine overseas. So when I'm overseas, um, if I'm travelling about and I want to, for example, 
acquire some antibiotics for my fluid bowels. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering, I, I go to the pharmacist and I see uh, um, ingredients that I recognize. Um, how much should I, uh, how much caution should I exercise when uh, finding these medications? So that's a great question and I'm going to defer that one to Lisa. So Lisa's in her other life and she has many. Uh, she works with the World Health Organization looking at medicines availability around the world. Do you want to comment on that, Lisa? Sure, I'd be happy to. And it's variable. That's it in a nutshell. But many countries have pre-qualified uh, programs. They're pre-qualified by WHO. They have drug regulatory uh, authorities in their country. And so actually the drugs you might find, even though they're over the counter, they can be, they can have the same quality level as drugs you might find in another country that's prescription. For example, there are drugs here that are over the counter that are only prescription in the United States but they're still the same uh, quality. Uh, but again, you'd have to know for every individual country, so I can't answer that. And we've definitely done studies where we showed that a pill did not contain, for example, the active ingredient people thought it contained. And so there have been spot surveys uh, demonstrating that all the way around, but it's variable. Sure. And are there any places that you can go to get this kind of information? Uh, you can actually look, WHO keeps a, uh, on their website a list of uh, countries that have uh, pre-qualified uh, drug approval programs and also they have a list of uh, surveys they've done uh, that are more of these spot check surveys on qualities within different countries and that's reported by country and by region. So that's a good question. Yes. Yeah, Andrew. Hi. Hi, Lisa. Um, I was at a Medicare local lecture about um, six weeks ago and we had a dermatologist giving us a lecture about something called hydrocortisone creams, mm -hmm. topical hydrocortisone creams. Yes, and anti-inflammatory? Maybe, baby. <laughs> Depending no. on the dose. I, I, you, I, sorry to interrupt you, keep going. No, that's fine. No, but what... Uh, the point he was making is that you pharmacists all say don't use too much topically because it's going to thin the skin. And he reckons it's such a codswallop, to put it nicely. Well, it's funny. I was, at a, I was at a similar lecture recently where a pharmacist was sharing that advice that we... Um, and, and it was also... Uh, he'd been working with some dermatologists as well. And that, So the risk here is that um, this question relates to the application of... Um, uh, cortisone creams, and, and there's a range of um, variations of these, some over-the-counter, some on prescription. And the comment was that, uh, from dermatologists, is that they've been perhaps underutilised uh, and people don't achieve an adequate response because they don't use enough of them. And we certainly know that, say, application to the face carries some risk, um, but again, it, it really is that mixture of how much you use and for how long you use it. Uh, and it really is a truism about any medicine. If you're using it at the recommended dose and it's not working, then it's time for a review. Is it the medicine or is it me? Do I need to go and have a chat to my doctor or pharmacist. Um, so it is interesting, uh, uh, particularly that mantra, if you like, of don't use it too much and you know, use it sparingly, that actually, and I think it's the use sparingly that really gets the dermatologist goat, actually. That's where they uh, don't enjoy us uh, writing that. And they encourage people to apply it, not, you know, all over their body, but to make sure that there's a, an adequate dose that's applied to achieve the response. And really that strikes at, 
you know, a, a bigger problem, and that's about how we understand and interpret evidence into practice. Uh, and of course, the dermatologists are obviously, they're actively in that space and seeing people with conditions and their response to those uh, products all the time. Whereas in community pharmacy, and certainly perhaps in general practice, people aren't seeing that response in the, in the same way. Uh, and one of the challenges we have in community pharmacy, uh, and many of the practitioners here, is that we often provide what we think is fantastic advice. We don't always get the privilege of follow-up to actually know what happened until perhaps they're in months later. And uh, you know, it's always devastating when I say, well, like, it didn't work and I went somewhere else. Uh, but sometimes we do get good feedback and say that worked to treat. You know, whereas uh, in other uh, condition or other clinical settings, we might have the chance to follow up and say, so how's it progressing? Is everything working okay? But um, that's a good myth that I'll probably have to do a little bit more research on to give you a really solid answer. But thank you. Yeah, I'll be here next week to I'll, your I'll, lecture. Next I'll look week. out for you. <laughs> Thanks very much, Andrew. I've got uh, five questions. Can we, can we do one at a time? We'll do one um, at a time. And maybe you can just question. give advice on how you deal with these situations. Sure. Number one, I'm recommending a product and I say to the person, why, what have you been using or why do you want to use a particular product? My neighbour uses it and she recommended it. Yes. Number two, uh, Covercil, generic. Covercil's 10 milligram, generic is 8 milligram. How to convince a person that 10 equals 8, even though I know chemically there's a reason for it? Is there any potential difference in the effectiveness of Covercil? Yeah, so, so can I do that one first? Can, can I do two at a time, just because yep. I have a short memory, I'm, I'm hopeless. <laughs> Let, let's do the first one. Um, the, you know, I mentioned in my talk, and you raised what is, I think, a really uh, important chestnut, is that a lot of people gather information uh, from friends and family. So as a healthcare professional, when I talk to someone and provide information, I know I'm often up against a, a person they hold in high esteem. So I'm always careful not to say, that's Cod's wallop, who told her that little lie? I'm usually a bit more gentle and say, well, that, that's an interesting observation. I suppose my experience, so I try and do that by the language I use, because I know in, in, in changing the way someone thinks about their medicine, I'm actually offending one of their really good friends who they truly believe uh, and trust. Um, and the other important thing to appreciate is we all respond differently to medicine. So it's quite likely their neighbour you know, had a good response. It doesn't necessarily mean that they will. Let's hope they do. Or if their neighbour had side effects, I'll say, don't ever take that medicine because you know, I had a terrible rash when I had that medicine. Now, that's the reality of, uh, of the randomness. Let's go to the second one. So for those members of the audience, we mentioned a brand name there of a, a particular medicine called Covacil. It's a medicine to lower your blood pressure, control hypertension. It contains a particular uh, type of uh, medicine, the active ingredient is perindopril, but it's uh, available in different salt forms, if you like. Uh, and the salt form actually has a different molecular weight. So in actual fact, to get the same amount of the active ingredient, you have different salt um, or amounts of the, of the salt and you get 10 milligrams and eight milligrams. Now what I can assure you, and I've seen this information because I was involved in it, is they actually tested, when they gave those eight milligram and 10 milligram, the different salts of perindopril, the blood concentrations, and more importantly, the active metabolite concentrations were equivalent. So that, that is a very difficult conversation to explain to someone. Uh, and arguably was a strategy that may have been used, I'm just speculating here, by the company to ensure that people didn't switch brands. But I, I'm probably overreading that, possibly. Thank you. Uh, next one on the question of quality appearance of generic compared to original. Sure. The, the outstanding one is Panadol compared to Panamax. 
Mm -hmm. I can swallow Panadol without any trouble. I hate trying to swallow Panamax. Sure. So is that about the shape of the it tablet is, or no, the size? Clearly the quality finish right. on Panadol is nice and smooth. Mm -hmm. In Panamax it's a rough looking tablet. Yeah. And it's hard to convince people that one is as good as the other. Yeah, so I, I must say I'm, I'm not here to endorse one uh, product or the other, but it's important to appreciate that people, you know, have different, um, might favour one brand over the other. And, and certainly um, different dose forms are prepared in different ways. Whether I haven't seen any controlled studies of swallowing ability for these dose forms, but it is very person specific. Uh, and some people might agree with you that uh, one is easier to swallow than the other. And some people might say, look, I don't have any problem. But that's it's certainly worth noting because the shapes are different, subtly. Yes. Yeah. And also, this happens in the hospitals. I was admitted for a couple of days and they kept offering me Panadol. Mm -hmm. I had to correct them. It's not Panadol they're offering me. It's a, it's a generic. Thank you. Which I didn't appreciate. And actually, as a person who works in hospital and have a chance to you know, work with healthcare professionals in the hospital, we really do try and use uh, the active ingredient name. And, and the reason for that is that it's the safest thing to use. It should be really clear. Uh, but it's funny, the words, some of those brands get into the common vernacular and people start to use them interchangeably. But I, I take your point and I'm glad you're keeping them honest. That's the most important thing. Um. What advice to a doctor, a GP, who flatly refuses to agree to any generic and tells all his patients don't accept generics? Um, so, I mean, I must say I have a very open mind about that and, and I'd like to have a chat with the doctor and understand what the concern might be. I'm interested in helping people, you know, have a choice, you know, uh, about the brand that they might, might be best suitable for them. Uh, and I, I can't guess why a particular doctor might um, decline um, the use of generic medicines or a particular brand. On, on the other part of it, I, I also know there are particular cases where a doctor might tick the box to say, do not switch this brand, because in conversation with that person, they know that they take a red tablet in the morning, and if it was all of a sudden a white tablet and they weren't sure, there might be a risk that they would double dose. So I, I'm always respectful of the clinician's decision to say, uh, don't switch it because I'm not, I'm not um, privy to the really important discussion between a doctor and, and the patient they're caring for. So look, there could be many reasons uh, and I, I wouldn't generalise that it might be any particular reason. So, you know, if I was a pharmacist and a person said to me I'd like an alternative brand, then one thing you could do is have a conversation with the general practitioner uh, about that. But remember, the way uh, brand substitution works, the idea is that we shouldn't do it if a, if a doctor hasn't uh, agreed to it. Thank you very much for your questions. You win the prize for most questions. <laughs> oh, if he has five, we're going to be in trouble. So. You just got, are you under, under 10 questions? No, no, you're most welcome, please. Hi, my name is Ahmed, a community pharmacist. Uh, my question is about packaging. Yes. So uh, I've been practicing for about 10 years and one of the major problems I see is actually customers, especially with generics, uh, you know how each generic company can have it, the whole range of the uh, generic yes. products? Pretty much look ident like very similar Yeah. with different active ingredients. So for the, for the customer, I mean the pharmacist can pick this up by scanning the product and recognize that, but for the patient at home with taking eight medication, Sometimes it becomes more confusing for, uh, for the patient Thank you. to have the same thing. So do you have any suggestions for the companies to actually yeah, so change this pattern of... Thanks, Ahmed. You've put your finger on one of the biggest challenges in medication safety, and it's what we call, in the business, we call it look-alike and sound-alike products. 
Uh, and hospitals have whole systems to try and avoid look-alike, sound-alike. So what, by, what we mean there is that the packs look almost identical. It's the, the company um, brand, if you like, um, but only a subtle word is changed. And that, that obviously can be confusing for pharmacists. And you said you use a scanner to make sure you don't pick the wrong one off the shelf. But for a patient, that starts to get quite confusing. So um, there's a couple of strategies. So this has been well known for some time. Uh, and I have to tell you, I'm involved in a number of uh, uh, initiatives uh, just as a partner, not leading them necessarily, in trying to put very clear uh, guidelines around packaging and labelling. And the Therapeutic Goods Administration has got a uh, consultation out at the moment about revising the guidelines to try and address some of those things. The other one would be the name of the product. So when I showed you the 26 Simba statins up there, many of them actually look very, very similar, which could you know, lead to uh, confusion uh, along the way. So uh, I, I suppose the important thing for, um, for helping your, uh, the patients that you care for is to figure out what they understand about their medicines. And I wouldn't generalise to say there's one solution. I think the idea of pointing out the similarities could also be highlighting the differences uh, between those particular products. Um, many of the dose forms, the tablets themselves, look very similar, but, but helping them figure out, obviously with your pharmacy label on them, uh, to be very clear about how they should be best taking those medicines. So I suppose in summary there's some system things that are happening to try and minimise that particular concern. And there's also things about communication and understanding we could work on. It's something that I always th I think about, why the genetic companies, by TGA or like some kind of regulations, why they don't... They, they don't have the obligation to pack in a look-alike of the original brand. I mean, we had that sometimes with some brands where they make the packaging close. Sure. sure. Um, one of the things, of course, is that the, the brand name product, the first on the market, they also have you know, the marketing rights to different use of different symbols and even shapes of packaging and the like. So these are things that are a lot complicated than I fully understand. Uh, and I know it's not always possible to, to actually, you know, uh, mimic. Uh, but, you know, these are great suggestions and ideas that we should always keep in mind. And next time the, the rep from one of those companies comes in, I reckon you've got some good advice for them. You could pass it on. Thank you very much. Wow. Great topic for tonight, great questions, great talk. I just want to uh, thank everyone for coming. I want to remind you there was a survey about the Sydney Ideas seminars on your seat, so please take a chance to fill that out. And we have some light refreshments uh, right now, and please stay and, and chat with us. Thank you very much. <laughs>